Good morning. As we continue to worship the God who is worthy, I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 23 this morning. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. And as you find uh, your place in God's Word there, I want to invite you to bow your head and for us to pray together before we open God's Word and study it together this morning. Let's pray. O Lord, Your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Grant us Your grace to receive Your truth by faith. Grant us the strength to follow on the path that You set before us. We pray this all in the name of Your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Before we study Mark chapter 7, I do want to just say Happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers who are watching online with us today. There are two quotes that come to my mind. One from Mitch Albom. Mitch Albom was a sports journalist who became a best-selling author Tuesdays with Maury and a variety of other books that maybe you're familiar with. But he said this about mothers, when you look at your mother, you are looking at the purest love that you will ever know. When you look at your mother, you're looking at the purest love that you will ever know. That's the first quote that comes to mind. But the, the second quote that comes to mind that, uh, that has stayed with me for, for a while is, is not Mitch Album, but here's the quote. It's not easy being a mother. If it were, fathers would do it. And that is from Rose from the Golden Girls. And so... Uh, Mom, I'm 100% sure you're watching this sometime on Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to you. And this is how much your son loves you. That uh, No Tim Keller quote this morning, uh, nothing from the Lord of the Rings, but we've got Betty White from the Golden Girls. So happy Mother's Day. Uh, seriously, though, when we think about Mother's Day this morning, I, I do think it is important for us just to uh, know what we know as sons and daughters, that there is something that is unique and there is something that is enduring that uh, a mother shows and the, the love that she shows uh, forth to her children. And so I'm thankful for that. I see that beautifully in my own mom's love for me. And I also see that so beautifully in the way that uh, Danielle loves Hayden Luke and, and Jonathan. And so happy Mother's Day to the mothers in who are watching us, the mothers in my life, the mothers in your life. Uh, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark this morning, and we have found our way to Mark chapter 7, which is a hand-washing controversy. And I know that seems to be uh, so far removed from a appropriate Mother's Day sermon, but I, I'm not really sure it's that far removed in the sense that it's, it's pretty fitting because uh, at the top of the list of what moms say is, go wash your hands. I hear Danielle say that uh, many times uh, during the days, uh, especially the days of social distancing and the days of our, our boys being at home. Go wash your hands. And so we have this hand-washing controversy that shows us something deeper than just proper hygiene, but it shows us what does it look like for us to be clean before a holy God? This is the controversy between the Pharisees and Jesus and his disciples. And we enter into that story in Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1 through 2 and then pick up in verse 5. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him 
with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed, verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, asked him being Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? What comes to mind when the Pharisees enter into the gospel accounts? When you're reading the gospels and the Pharisees enter stage left, what, what comes to your mind? I think for much of my Christian life, Every time the Pharisees would, would enter into the gospel accounts, there was somewhere in the back of my mind is sort of the soundtrack uh, for Darth Vader entering into a room. I mean, they're just pitted in, in my perception, and I think a lot of people's perception is the ultimate villain to the gospels, and ultimate villain certainly to Jesus here. But it's really just not fair, is it? it it's not fair when you, when you get to the heart of the goal of a Pharisee was that they were supremely concerned with pleasing God. And they misunderstood how they would achieve that, but they were supremely concerned with pleasing God. They oriented all of their life around following the law. They had developed oral traditions that were passed down. This is what they're talking about here, according to the tradition of the elders in verse 5. Now, now that was orally passed down in the time of Jesus, but 200 years after Jesus and the early church there, what you discover is what's called the Mishnah, which is the codification of those oral traditions are actually written down. So, so we can see the oral traditions that, that the Pharisees lived by that come into conflict with Jesus and the disciples here. Two-thirds of the Mishnah, two-thirds of these oral traditions were concerned with food. Who you can eat with, who you couldn't eat with. What you could eat, what you couldn't eat the dishes that you would serve food on, the pots that you would cook with. I mean, this is the oral tradition here, and, and so much of it's practical. I mean, just think of it this way. Your hands 2,000 years ago, this is your silverware. This is how you would feed yourself with your hands. So you wouldn't want to share dinner with a family member who had been out back tending to the sheep before they washed their hands. And this seems obvious, doesn't it? It seems like, what's the controversy here? Especially in a day, in an age with COVID-19 and great attention that's being placed upon proper hygiene and washing your hands. I didn't know before three months ago that I was supposed to say the ABCs three or two times, I guess, or I think it's sing happy birthday two times through before you're finished washing your hands. So there's a lot of attention with proper hygiene in our culture right now, and it's proper and it's important, but I do think we miss the entire point when we just see the Pharisees' pursuit of washing hands as something that is uh, first or even secondarily about not spreading germs. That isn't what this is about here. For a Pharisee, physical impurity, defilement of your hands was a sign of moral impurity. It was the state of your heart here. To have dirty hands was to have a dirty heart in the mind of a Pharisee. And so spiritually, they didn't do things. They didn't touch a corpse. They didn't touch a leper, uh, someone who has a disease. They wouldn't touch them. Why? Because it would defile 
their heart in their mind, in the tradition of the elders and in the Old Testament law here. And here comes this radical rabbi by the name of Jesus who seems to throw tradition out the window and you're walking through the gospel of Mark and he heals who? He heals a leper. How does he do that? By touching the leper. He heals someone who is dead. Jairus' daughter, we talked about her a couple of weeks ago. How does he do that? By holding her hand. And so here is Jesus showing the hollowness and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in their pursuit of following the oral traditions while being far removed from God. Notice what Jesus says in verses 6 through 8 of Mark 7. He said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 8, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of man. Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13 is what Jesus is quoting here to the Pharisees. And the word that he uses, that word hypocrite, is a word in the day of Jesus which would have been a theater word. It was a word for an actor. It was an actress. It was someone that would play a part. They would be performing They could get a spiritual Emmy, a spiritual Oscar, but they were far from God internally. They were far from God uh, in in their heart. They weren't authentic in their pursuit and their motivation. And we see that in verses 9 through 13. How, How does Jesus know that? Because he realizes that while they're exalting the oral traditions, they're, they're minimizing the call of God upon their life to love those that were closest to them, their parents, their mom and their dad. There's this little excursus here that Jesus gives us in these four verses about how these Pharisees were, were committing Corban. They, they were pledging money to the temple never thinking that they would actually give the money to the temple. But when mom and dad come and say, hey, I have a need, they would say, oh, I've committed that money to the temple, so I can't help here. So Jesus, what is he doing? He's exposing their hypocrisy. He's exposing how they're so intent on uh, checking off all of the boxes. But if you actually gave a spiritual x-ray of what was in their heart, they were far from God because they were neglecting love for those who were closest to them, mom and dad, in that first century world here. And so you could just imagine you know, someone who had a need going to their son and, and the son saying, oh, I, I really wish that I could help, but you remember I pledged that money to the temple here. And so Jesus is just saying, hey, you're following the quote-unquote rules, but your heart is far from God. You don't have a deep abiding relationship with Him. And so what Jesus does here is He uses this hand-washing controversy to really give us an insight into the root of our broken heart. Uh, The root of the Pharisees' broken heart and the root of your broken heart and my broken heart. How can we be right with the Holy God? Well, it's not by keeping a list of regulations. No, we will not go in that direction. We will not pursue God. We cannot earn His love here. Notice what Jesus says in verses 18 through 23. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean here. 
Verse 20, and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, far from within, out of the heart of man. Notice the repetition here. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And he just goes on. All these, verse 23, all these evil things come from where? Within. Not from without. From within and they defile the person. Now, it, it can be easy to miss the point of what Jesus is saying here. So just to boil it down, what Jesus is saying is that purity is not about washing our hands. It's not about ceremonial cleansing. Rather, it's a, it's a matter of our heart. And our human heart has a problem. Our human heart... now. I think you know this, but if you're watching this, Jesus isn't talking about our physical organ of the heart. He uses it as a metaphor all throughout the Bible. We have the heart as a metaphor, an illustration, an analogy of, of, that is the center of our being. That's what the heart is. It's the center of our being. It represents the deepest commitments of our life. It represents what we value the most. That's why Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 would say, where our treasure is, is where our heart is also. So what we value the most, that is what we're committed to the most. So in the Bible, the heart represents a source, the source of our thoughts, the source of our emotions, the source of our actions. And so Jesus is saying at our core, our heart is broken. It's rotten. It doesn't point us to what will naturally please God. Actually, it points us to what is contrary to God's design and God's purpose here. And the Pharisees, they want to fix this heart problem by keeping this list of rules here. And they want to fix this heart problem with legalism. And Jesus says, no, that, that can't fix that. Because within us, there's this deep problem. We are tainted by sin. At our core, we have a problem. Now, this goes against, and I hope you realize this, this, this goes against what feels so right. This is contrary to even our popular culture here. We hear what seems to be just, just common sense in our culture. Follow your heart, someone would say. Be true to your heart. What we feel in our heart, we kind of feel like is always good. And that's the arbiter of what is right and what's good. As long as we feel it deeply, who could argue with it, right? I mean, think about Pinocchio. What really is the whole theme for, for Disney, when you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you if your heart is in your dream, no request is too extreme. Now, I'm not trying to pick on Disney here, but notice, notice what this represents here. If you feel it, if you feel it deep down inside of you, it must be good, right? If you believe it enough, it must be right. Well, no. Jeremiah, the prophet, would say the heart, in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts, Scripture tells us, are broken compasses. 
Our hearts lead us naturally in the wrong direction. To follow our heart will lead, well, notice what Jesus talks about, prejudice and jealousy and greed and, and uh, theft and lying. This comes from our heart. It's not external to us, but rather it's deep inside of us. We're broken at the core. Now, Jesus doesn't leave us here, nor does Scripture leave us with just the root of our broken heart, but we can see the hope of our broken heart in Scripture here, and that's the good news. That's the remedy of what Jesus is diagnosing as a problem with the Pharisees, but it is a problem of all humanity, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You have a heart problem, but here is the good news, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that He has come to fix our heart problem. He has come to rescue us from this alienation, how we're far from God at our core. Now, you can't earn that. It's a gift. We receive it. We don't earn it. We receive it. It's, it's really Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophet Ezekiel, where he, he not only recognizes that we have a heart issue, but he looks forward to the day that is fulfilled in the gospel when that heart problem has a solution to it. Ezekiel chapter 36, you'll see it on uh, your screen here, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, notice again, a heart of flesh. The gospel is this. In Jesus, we can receive a, a spiritual heart transplant. Jesus' own physical heart, when he died upon the cross, it stopped beating in his death and his resurrection. What did he do this for? Well, he does this to give us access to a new heart, a spiritual heart transplant. Now, how do you receive that new heart? It's not by trying to be a good person. It's not by keeping a whole long list of rules because you can keep that whole long list of rules and at the core of you be far from God. You can do everything external, but just like the Pharisees, you could be play acting. You could be uh, going through the motions, but, but your heart is far from him. We need a new heart. And that new heart is only offered uh, through Jesus Christ and it's only received by faith. Paul would sum it up so clearly when he's writing to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe, notice what Paul says, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you admit that you have a heart problem and at the very depth of who you are, you turn not to yourself, but you turn to Jesus as your Savior, that he will save you. If you give yourself to him, you place your faith in him and what he has done for you, he will rescue you from your heart problem. Early in my ministry, I had a mentor for a season who was a pastor who was decades older than I was, wise and beloved pastor. But at the age of, I don't know, 60, 61, 62, he came to a place where he had such heart trouble that he was at the brink of death. And so he goes to the Mayo Clinic and he received a heart transplant. 
and he lived uh, years, years after this heart transplant. And, and for many years, he's living with someone else's heart. Literally, he would say, I think every day that I was around him, I am the luckiest man on the planet. Every day I'm living on borrowed time. I heard him say that so often. And if you think about it, someone's death gave him life. And he was a new man. He lived with gratitude because of what he received. It was sort of like gratitude propelled him forward and it changed his habits. So what he put in his body was different after his heart transplant than it was before the heart transplant. He made healthier choices because he knew the consequences of unhealthy dietary choices over periods of his life that led him to the place where he needed a, a new heart. He, he took up walking. I mean, he, he, he wasn't a person that was running marathons or those kinds of things before, but, but he became active and, and healthier because of what he had received. And he would just tell anybody and everybody of what had happened in his life because he was a man that was motivated by gratitude. I oftentimes think when people are asking, what does it mean to please God? What does it look like to please God in your life and in my life? What does it look like to please God as a father? What does it look like to please God as a student? What does it look like to please God as a mother? What does it look like to please God in any season or stage of our life? What does it look like to please God? Well, it's to live a life of gratitude. It's to live a life of gratitude apart from Christ we are spiritually dead in our sins. We are dead men and dead women walking. But in Christ, we have received what we could not provide for ourselves. We have received a new heart, a new spiritual lease on life. I remember being past this, uh, being around this pastor, and he had this gift. He always had perspective. No matter how difficult things were, there was a, a sense of perspective that he had. And it was because he had been through so much and his life was forever etched by what he had received. And life can be difficult. Life is difficult right now. Record unemployment for, for many people are, are facing sickness and they're facing unemployment and they're facing stress. They're facing anxiety. They're facing more question marks than they have answers for. So, uh, you might be watching this and, and you feel just bombarded with trials and you feel bombarded with uncertainty here and know that when you are a follower of Jesus, when you've received this spiritual heart plant, you are per, a heart transplant, you are propelled by gratitude to, to live a life that is pleasing to him. Because of what you've received in him, it changes your perspective on anything that you face in life. The Christian always has someone and something to be grateful for. That no matter what you face, no matter the trial, no matter the uncertainty, we always have someone and something to be thankful for. What you have received in Christ is far greater than anything that this world can take from you. 
This is the power of the gospel, that what you've received in Christ is far greater than anything that this world can take from you. So you have a new lease. I have a new lease. If you're not a follower of Jesus, trust him. Receive that spiritual heart transplant and begin even today to pause and to thank God, to thank God that you are not right with him by rule keeping because you would never, ever come close to perfectly keeping the law. But here's the good news. By trusting in his work upon the cross, we can receive, we can receive that spiritual heart transplant. So I encourage you, live a life of obedience, motivated by gratitude for what you have received. Let us pray. Gracious God, I thank you for the opportunity. The opportunity to look at your word and be reminded of the root of our heart problem. To be reminded of the hope, the hope, even in the face of our heart problem. The hope is you, our Savior and our Lord. So we look to you. We want to live a life of gratitude, even in the midst of difficulty even in the midst of challenges, knowing that what we've received from you, it changes. It changes how we live now. It changes how we talk now. It changes everything about our lives. We were dead men, dead women walking, and you have given us a new lease, not only through abundant life here, but eternal life and the new heaven and the new earth to come. So for that, we are grateful. We pray even in the midst of the difficulty that so many are facing that we would point people to the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our words and in lives, lives that are etched with gratitude. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior Jesus. Amen.